Well, let's look at these first two verses. Starting in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask your Holy Spirit to teach us this morning. Help us to focus on your Son this morning, the way the book of Colossians does. Help us grow in believing that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The, for by him and all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It is in Jesus' name that we pray this this morning. Amen. Colossians is a New Testament letter in the Bible that was written by a specific person to a specific group of people for a specific reason. And even though this book was written a long time ago, you're going to see this morning, if I succeed, is that this still applies to us today. That even though it was written to this specific group of people in a specific time and in a specific place, it is timeless in the way that it applies to us this morning at Church on the Way and other churches throughout the world. To understand Colossians, it's important to remember that like all books of the Bible, it's written to a specific cultural and historical moment. It's so easy sometimes for us to read the words of the Bible and take them out of their context, their historical context, and try to apply them to our contact, context with no understanding of what was going on and what was happening at the time. And so this morning, hopefully understanding the background of the original recipients can help us to better understand what God intended to communicate to us through his word. So even though Colossians was written a long time ago, it is incredibly relevant to our lives today. And my goal this morning is to basically create a time machine and hop you in and go back 2,000 years and try to explain the original purpose of Colossians. Who wrote it? Who, who was it written to? Why was it written? And how does it relate to the church today? These are some of the questions that I hope to answer this morning. And I'm going to use these first two verses of Colossians to kind of serve as the introduction to the book. These verses, these are really Paul's customary greeting. There's nothing new or exciting, really, in a sense, about this. This is kind of Paul's normal way of starting a letter. And if you're taking notes this morning, I, I'm going to try to break this sermon up and center it around three questions. And so there will be kind of three big questions that I hope, by the end of this, you'll walk out of here knowing who wrote the letter who was the letter written to, and what is the purpose 
of the letter. So if I can answer, and you can answer, more importantly, those three things when you leave this morning, then I'll know I've succeeded in preaching this sermon. And answering these three questions, I think, will give us a lot of background information that I trust will pay huge dividends as we then unpack verse by verse the rest of Colossians in the weeks to come. So let's begin with question number one. Who wrote the letter? Look at verse one of Colossians. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So clearly... Based on what we have in the text, Paul is the author of the book of Colossians. This is also affirmed by the early church who accepted Paul's authorship without question. Paul even references his own authorship three times in this letter. And this is confirmed by many of the personal details about individuals that he gives throughout the letter that we'll look at as we go along. The most important detail that Paul mentions that really helps us to uh, try to figure out when he wrote this is he says that he was imprisoned. In the very last verse of Colossians 4.18, it says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So we know that Paul wrote the letter, but we also now know that Paul wrote the letter while in prison. And scholars generally agree that he wrote this during his first imprisonment. In other words, after his missionary journeys, Paul was captured by the Jews in Jerusalem who wanted to kill him. And then he was handed over to the Romans and held in custody while awaiting the trial. Now, for those of you who are involved in the legal system nowadays, and you complain about how slow it grinds along, no, that's nothing new, right? Paul was held for two years. He was transferred to Caesarea and he waited in custody for two years to go to, to, go to trial. And, and the, the plan for the, for the Jews was to bring him back to Jerusalem, but Paul was aware that there was a plot to assassinate him by the Jews, so he used his Roman citizenship to appeal to Caesar. This meant, instead of going back to Jerusalem he would get transferred to Rome to stand trial before Caesar himself. And then after a deadly shipwreck, he finally reached Rome and was imprisoned for another two years while he awaited to stand trial. So Paul's waiting four years imprisoned just to go to trial, just to stand and have his day in court. Now, the first time around, it's not like he was locked away in a prison. Paul's first imprisonment was more like what we would call house arrest. Acts 28, 16 says, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So they didn't have those fancy ankle monitors that we have nowadays, right? So they would just put a guard with you 24-7, and that was your ankle monitor. He was there to monitor your movements and to make sure you didn't go anywhere. But Paul was able to receive visitors. There was no problem in someone coming over to the house as long as Paul didn't leave the sight of the guard as many people that wanted to come over were welcome to come over. 
And we know this because, again, in the book of Acts, it's recorded in chapter 28, verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And the book of Acts ends and says in verses 30 through 31 of 28, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. At the end of Acts, we see God's hand at work to establish his church. Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome may have seemed like a disaster from the outside looking in, right? This is the leader of the Christian movement at this point. This is the lead apostle who wrote most of the New Testament. And so to think, oh, he's locked up, he's imprisoned. Whatever are we going to do? It it, it seemed like everything was going wrong. But God used it. He used that imprisonment to allow him to preach the the gospel safely and unhindered. Paul didn't have to hire private security. Rome issued one for him. Right? Paul was able to preach the message of the gospel completely unhindered. People came and heard the gospel. And the church continued to grow despite the optics of him being in prison. Instead, that served to help the church. This shows, guys, an important lesson for us this morning. That the gospel cannot be imprisoned. I hear people all the time, I'm so worried they're going to lock us up because of the gospel. And they're going to, what are we going to do? We're going to keep preaching the gospel. And there's a whole group of people that may be inside that prison that would never have heard the gospel if they didn't lock us up. So we need to stop being afraid that the gospel is going to be hindered. I think what we're more concerned about is that our comfort will be hindered. Our true God is rearing its head, and that's a God of comfort in America. We don't want to suffer. We want to hide from suffering. But Paul's life, Paul's example tells us that the gospel cannot be imprisoned. It's impossible. As long as it's preached, lives are transformed. Can you imagine those guards that were on rotation having to sit there and listen to Paul preach the gospel over and over and over again. I think about that with the the guys who are planting the churches in the prison. They have to have a corrections officer with them at all times. For every one of their services, there's a guard in the back assigned to that church service. He has to hear the gospel preached. That's an amazing missionary opportunity because those guys might not get out anytime soon, but every night that guy goes home to his family. Every night he goes home to his community and it's a different person. It's not the same person every time. So even if the church doesn't grow that much in Hamilton, which it is, but all those guards are hearing the gospel, just like with Paul. He's faithfully preaching the gospel and the gospel is going out and continuing to grow. And Paul attests to this to, to the Colossians. He mentions the hope that we have laid up for us in heaven. 
Look at chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God and truth. In prison, Paul knows that the spread of the gospel cannot be stopped. It it continues to build his church. And whenever this message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus goes out, God uses it to bring new life. Therefore, Paul's first imprisonment didn't hinder the gospel spread at all. In Rome, the gospel continued to be preached and many people were coming to Christ. This was all a part of Christ's plan for Paul from before he was even arrested in Jerusalem. In fact, the Lord visited Paul another time and told him this in Acts 23, verse 11, where it says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. See, this was all part of God's plan all along. God had a specific mission for Paul and he wanted him exactly there in Rome despite being in prison those two years. So back to Colossians 1. It's not insignificant that Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. An apostle is a title given to a select few who are specifically called and commissioned by the risen Lord himself. They were to be the Lord's representatives on earth, giving God's word and will to the new church. The Lord used the apostles to record the inspired New Testament writings. One of the reasons that a book is in your Bible is because of apostolic authorship, right? And this is what sets the New Testament books apart. This gives these writings authority over all of the church, not just to the one church the letter was written to. God used the apostles and prophets to lay the foundation for the church with Christ as the ultimate cornerstone. These apostles would be the foundation on which the the church would rest largely through the giving of the word that we have now in the form of the New Testament. So although we're not the Colossian church, Colossians is still God's word to us. And this is why Paul can speak authoritatively to the controversy in the church, even though he had never been there before. Paul had never visited this church. He had never been a part of a worship service with this church. And this explains why what Paul says at the end of Colossians, if you look forward to chapter 4, verse 16, where he uses his apostolic authority, he says this, And when this letter has been read among you, Have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. The writings of the apostle have authority over all the churches, and this includes all the New Testament letters. Paul believed that his his life conversion, his apostleship, were were all given to him by God. And he wrote this letter from prison, but he was not concerned because he knew that God was working out his will for the kingdom through his servants. As believers in Christ, we have already died. Our lives belong to him. 
Therefore, our purpose this morning is to serve Him. To live for His glory and not our own glory. Now here in Colossians, back in chapter 1, you see Paul was not alone. For instance, Timothy, our brother, it says, Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. His child in the faith, his, his disciple. He accompanied Paul on many of his missionary travels and is represented in Paul's writings, in many of Paul's writings. And Timothy, and Timothy is the real personification of a faithful friend. We, we just came out of a series about what it means to be a friend. And if there's ever a really good New Testament example, it, it's Paul and Timothy. And here, Timothy has made his way to Rome to continue that service with Paul. And almost surely, Timothy functioned as Paul's kind of man on the outside, if you will, right? Paul's locked up. He can't go anywhere. But Timothy can go out and bring people to Paul, right? He, he can go out and say, hey, you need to come here. Paul preached this message, this life-changing message of the gospel. And he's the one that can make arrangements for Paul to still have this gospel witness despite being in shackles. And we'll see that unfold in future messages. But let's, let's move on to the second question. So that question number one, who wrote the book, is the apostle Paul. And he wrote it for the Colossian church, but he also wrote it for us at Church on the Way this morning. So the second question, number two, who was the letter written to? Look at verse two in Colossians chapter one, where he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. He's addressing the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which does not refer to two separate groups of people, just to be clear. Rather, it, it encompasses encompasses all those who are in Christ. The term saint signifies holy ones who are set apart. All those who are in Christ have been set apart by him. All believers are saints by calling and all brethren are united to Christ the head. So they are united to his body. When you become a part of the family of God, you gain a bunch of new brothers and sisters in the Lord. And what sets all Christians apart is their status of being in Christ. That's the difference. It's not that we're better people. It's not that we're more moral people. It's that we are in Christ. Period. And that's a technical term in the New Testament. In fact, Verse 2 reads, to the holy and faithful brothers in Colossae in Christ. As Christians, we belong to two realms, right? We are citizens of two countries. One is earthly and one is heavenly. While we live in this age, we are bound to a nation or a people. So for most of us in here this morning, that means we are Americans, However, our heavenly citizenship is now what defines us. So our American citizenship becomes second. So it doesn't matter if we're Roman, Colossian, or American. Above all, we are Christian. 
This is what determines how we live in this world. Our citizenship primarily now is in heaven and our privileged position in Christ dictates everything else about our lives. In Colossians, we will see this concept of being in Christ fleshed out more in the coming weeks. But the notion of our union with Christ is the the fountainhead from which all the blessings of salvation flow. Suffice it to say, we will learn a, a lot more about what it means to be united in Christ. These Christians happen to live in Colossae that he's writing to. That is their earthly realm. The concept of being in Christ transcends any geographical location. But let's take a look, let's zoom in for a second on this geographical location. Colossae was a city in Asia Minor, which if you're going to go look on a map, you're not going to find that today, but you'll find the country of Turkey. And it's known for a windy, snaking path, the the Menendrez River, the word we now have, meander, we get meander from. And, and out of that, there was a, a, a shoot of the Lycus River that fed into a narrow valley. And there, there were three major cities that existed in the, in the ancient world. Herapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. Colossae is located about 10 miles to the east of those other cities. And Colossae had been a, a great city of size. Like, it, it, it was important during the Greek and Persian empires, kind of the way Lake City is important, right? Because two major highways crossed in that city. That's really the only thing we got going for us here, right? I-75 and I-10 just happened to cross right here, right? Well, if you look on a map anywhere else in the country where two major interstate interchanges cross like that, you see a major metropolis. We're the exception, some of you are saying, praise God. But, but that's what happened in Colossae. It, it, it was a crossroad of two major trading posts. And they were known for their textile industries, specifically the export of fine, dark red wool. And, and this intersection between the North-South Highway and the East-West Highway contributed to its rise. But later, the north-south highway was rerouted through Laodicea, causing Colossae to shrink and fade away, similar to the way a lot of small downtowns do when they put in an an interstate bypass and people stop going downtown, right? They start going out by the interstate, and and the city just begins to shrink. And that's, that's what's happening here in Colossae. This is also an area that's known for earthquakes, And they occasionally did severe damage that were extremely detrimental to the cities of the region. And shortly after Paul wrote Colossians uh, and sent it to them, the entire Lycus Valley was devastated by an earthquake, which probably ended the occupation of Colossae. And sadly, we don't know a lot about this city because there hasn't been a lot of... We know where it was at, but there's not been a lot of excavation done in this area to help us to understand more about what was happening in this city. And that probably explains why in Revelation 2 and 3, all seven churches, the major cities in Asia Minor, with Laodicea as the last 
on Jesus' list, even though Colossae was nearby. But by the time of that writing, the inhabitants had probably left and moved to Laodicea or near Laodicea. And Paul himself, he, he focused on major population centers like Ephesus, Corinth, Athens, Rome, making Colossians the, the least significant of all the destinations of the letters that he wrote. And although the church in Colossae may appear small and insignificant compared to, say, a church in a larger city, the contents of the letter prove vastly important. And churches like this one, like us, can take encouragement from the fact that God can use them mightily in his kingdom program. Right? This, this small church that Paul never even got a chance to visit that we know of, is, is you're learning about it today. You're, you're going to learn about Christ because of it today. And, and God has a way of using the small and insignificant in surprising ways. And I hope that encourages you this morning. Again, it's worth noting that Paul never visited Colossae during his missionary travels because, again, he stuck to major cities. But it wasn't surprising that he had never been there because of how small it was. Additionally, Paul didn't found this church, but rather it was founded by a man named Epaphras. On Paul's third missionary journey, he winds up in Ephesus and he stays there for over two years. And at Ephesus, about 100 miles west on the coast of Asia Minor, during that time it says that people from all over Asia Minor, they came to Ephesus just to hear Paul preach the gospel. And so he didn't have to go visit every small town around there because they were coming to him. Acts 19.10 confirms this. It says, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In Ephesus, a man named Epaphras heard Paul preach the gospel about Jesus being the true Messiah. Despite him being a a dead Jewish carpenter, he rose from the dead. And being convinced and converted, Epaphras then became a missionary and returned to Colossae to share the good news with others. As a result, many people believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and the church of Colossae was established. Paul acknowledges in Colossians 1-7 that Epaphras was the one who first delivered the gospel to the Colossians, and he calls him a fellow bondservant and faithful servant of Christ. Epaphras became an extension of Paul's gospel ministry. However, there was trouble beginning to brew in this new little church. And so Epaphras left Colossae and traveled to seek out Paul. And he informed Paul about what was happening in the Colossian church and shared in chapter 1, verse 8, that they had love and were filled with the Holy Spirit. Epaphras had uh, a shepherd's heart and he was very concerned for the sheep at Colossae. And he sought out Paul for shepherding reasons, which we will see in chapter 4, 12 and 13. He says, Epaphras, 
who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Epaphras seems to become the gospel representative, the the go-to for these three cities in the Lycus Valley region. And Epaphras went to see Paul, but he won't be returning to the church. And this is kind of unexpected. But it seems that Epaphras may have also become imprisoned. Paul refers to Epaphras as his fellow prisoner. And it's worth noting that, that Paul wrote the letters to the Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon during his imprisonment. Philemon, by the way, lived in Colossae. And we might expect that these three letters be taken by Epaphras back to the people there, but no, we're gonna, they're going to go back by a man named Tychicus, not Epaphras. It's unclear why Epaphras couldn't make it to his people at that time, but there must have been some significant reason for him not to be the one carrying the letter back to his home church. In our discussion of the book of Colossians, we're going to explore how it it bears a strong resemblance to the book of Ephesians. These two books share themes and terms and a a flow that were essentially written back-to-back by Paul while he was in prison. And although they have similarities, Ephesians has its unique concerns that Paul is addressing. These letters were written either somewhere around 54 to 56 A.D., while he was imprisoned at Ephesus, or 59 to 62 when he was imprisoned in Rome. And they're known as the prison epistles, and when you add Philippians, it makes a total of four of them. And it's notable that Colossians stands out because of the specific issue that Paul addresses. It appears that the primary reason why Epaphras visited Paul was to request his help in dealing with some false teaching that was starting to emerge and beginning to influence certain members of the church. Epaphras must have felt ill-equipped to handle the situation, so he's going to call in an expert, right? Sometimes you've got to have somebody from the outside uh, help you. I always joke about that as a pastor. It's like I can say something 20 times, and then a, a person can come in, like Austin last week, and say something. And inevitably, people will walk up to me and go, I didn't realize this. And I'm thinking, I've said it 20 times. <laughs> but just having that outside voice sometimes helps it to click. Just, just this week, somebody messaged me, and they, they finally connected that anything that led to comfort was idolatry. And they were like, I don't, I don't know why I didn't get that before. And I'm thinking, I don't either. But I'm glad you got it now. So that brings us to the third question. We're going to look at the concern that Epaphras had and, and how to navigate the, the issue, the, the purpose of the letter. What, what was the purpose of the letter? Well, again, look at the end of verse 2. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And again, this is not surprising. This is Paul's kind of standard greeting He wished his grace and peace on them, both of which flow from God our Father through the work of Christ. And and this letter is indeed going to share grace and peace of God to them. If you had a chance to pre-read it, 
That's one thing you're going to get loud and clear from this letter. But let me introduce something that I'm just going to call it the Colossian heresy because we don't know a whole lot about it. But this was the specific reason for Paul to be writing this letter. The Colossian heresy was some kind of false teaching that stirred in or around the church. Again, we don't know much about the details, but Paul's writing to the Colossians kind of provides us some insight of what may have been going on. And Epaphras, again, wanted Paul's help in addressing it. And we're kind of left to piece together exactly what was going on. And we, we can identify certain key elements, like chapter 2, 2. It says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And then in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Throughout the letter, the false teaching was doing one thing. Again, we don't know exactly what, it, what the teaching was in great detail, but what we do know is it was diminishing Christ. They, they were trying to add something to Christ, right? So in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, of the world, I'll come back to that in just a minute, and not according to Christ. So we don't get the sense that these false teachers were outright denying Christ. But they did diminish him by adding something to Christ. There was something else required. And for sure, they denied the deity of Christ, and that allows Paul to put the full deity of Christ on display in Colossians. Like in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The main point of the false teachers mentioned in chapter 2, verse 18, is that Christ alone is not sufficient to give a complete spiritual experience. They claim that you, you cannot find wisdom, knowledge, or enlightenment in Christ alone. You need something else. And these false teachers are characterized by pride. They are puffed up about their visions that they have, and they claim to have this secret knowledge that others do not possess. They believe that to enter into the fullness of spiritual blessing, you need to follow their worldview and philosophy. Their characteristics include worship of angels, asceticism, self-abasement, and a legalistic approach that confuses rules with spiritual growth. Chapter 2, verse 16, introduces a unique false teaching that has a distinctive Jewish flavor. The verse states that no one has to judge another person in regard to food, drink, festivals, new moons, or Sabbath day. These are distinctly Jewish practices, especially the Sabbath. And those things are, are mere shadows of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And, and so there's some kind of Jewish influence. Again, we don't know specifically what kind, but there's clearly something going on there. In chapter 2, verse 11 of this letter, Paul discusses the true circumcision and Christ. And it appears that he is addressing certain, again, Jewish concerns. 
And this raises the question of what exactly he's dealing with. Is it a a Greek philosophy that has a Jewish background, or could it be a, a kind of synchristic blend of Jewish thinking and Greek philosophy? And it seems likely that we are dealing with some kind of Jewish sect that has incorporated Greek beliefs into their own religious practices. And Paul uses the term philosophy to describe the different flavors of Judaism that existed throughout the Roman Empire. And this is not uncommon when you consider that Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, also used the same word to describe them. The Jews were known for assimilating Greek and Roman practices into their worship. And it's likely that this is what Paul is referring to. It's also worth noting that if anyone was going to challenge the sufficiency of Christ and badger the new Christians in Colossians, it would have probably been the Jewish people. They would have taken offense at the Gentiles who claim to have a greater hope and a fuller knowledge and wisdom in Christ. And it's important, though, not to blow the heresy out of proportion. In Colossians, Paul doesn't directly identify or deal with them head on, unlike in his other letters where he takes on false teachers by naming names. The the reason for this, I think, is because the threat is still on the horizon. Paul, Paul or Epaphras sees this potential problem coming and he goes to get Paul's help to address this potential problem that he sees coming. But the church hasn't fallen for it yet. And despite not being a perfect church, because there is no such thing, they show good discipline and stability of their faith in Christ. In chapter 2, verse 6, Paul affirms them and expresses his joy in seeing their strong faith, unlike the Galatians who struggled with their faith. Paul wrote to the Colossians in order to prevent this influence of false teaching, emphasizing the importance of remaining firm in their faith. One of the things we need to understand this morning is to remind ourselves, again, to kind of hop in that time machine and travel back to this day and age, what a dangerous thing it was to become a Jesus follower during this time. You see, every city, every town, every village had local gods and goddesses that they worshipped. And worshiping the gods and goddesses was a way of keeping the city safe. Because in, a, in the ancient worldview, which was a little bit of paganism mixed with stoicism, plus a bunch of other philosophies all mixed together, the, the gods were the local inhabitants just as much as the humans were local inhabitants. And every city or town had these two kinds of residences, right? Or residents. You, there were those that you could see, me and you. And then those who you couldn't see. These were the gods and the goddesses. And it's important to keep the the unseen inhabitants happy with you. Because if you didn't, terrible things would happen to you. Remember, this was an area prone with earthquakes. Right? And so imagine being there and not understanding anything about tectonic plates and shifts and all the things that we understand now about why the earthquakes, you've got to come up with an, an, an explanation for that. You've got to come up with a reason for that. So there might be an, an earthquake or a flood or some great illness that would overtake the city 
Because you weren't appeasing the local gods. You weren't worshiping or sacrificing to them the correct way. Now, if you didn't give them the respect they deserved, in other words, you neglected their festivals, you're you're not making the right sacrifices, then there was this whole group of people, these, these group of priests, whose job it was to explain how the latest disaster was caused by the people worshiping incorrectly. Right? So an earthquake would hit, well, the local gods are mad at us. A famine would hit, well, the local gods are mad at us. Our, our sacrifice wasn't correct this year. We've we got to step it up next year. And so in the ancient world, the idea of a new religion was a big deal. When people converted to a new faith, it was a public matter. This new way of thinking became a threat to the status quo. And the people of Colossae were afraid of what might happen if they stopped worshiping the old gods and started following Jesus, right? Those elemental forces in the world. And the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the believers in Colossae to encourage them to stay strong in their faith even when things got tough. He knew that the people of Colossae were under pressure from their neighbors who would blame them if anything bad happened to the town. But Paul reminded them that Jesus was the true Lord, the one who had come to save them from their sins. Paul knew that the new believers in Colossae needed support and guidance. They were living in a world where Caesar was worshipped as God. And they were... And there were Jewish leaders in the synagogue who were suspicious of anyone who followed Jesus. But Paul wanted them to know that Jesus was the center of their faith. And that everything that they did should be focused on him. In the end, Paul's letter to the Colossians was a message of hope and encouragement. He wanted them to know that they were not alone in their struggles. And that Jesus was with them every step of the way. You see, whenever that town would have those festivals to worship those local gods, it would be very apparent to everyone in that little city that, you know, that group of Christians aren't here. They're not worshiping the local gods with us anymore. They're not appeasing the local gods anymore. So guess what would happen anytime anything bad happened? Who are they going to be looking at? Who are they going to persecute? Right? The people who were not going along with the plan. The Christians. And even though they faced opposition and persecution, their faith in Jesus, Paul is trying to communicate to them, would be the the thing that sustained them through it all. Paul offers his pastoral help and teaching to this new and vulnerable community in Colossians. Similar problems had arisen in Galatia, where Paul had already encountered and addressed them. In the churches of southern Asia Minor, specifically between Tarsus and the west coast, where Ephesus and Colossae were located, Paul focused on the question of the church in relation to the synagogue. In Colossians, we hear echoes of this theme. However, throughout both Galatians and Colossians, the central focus is always, always, always on Jesus. That's his central focus. He's the one we proclaim. 
It's not about the type of religion one practices, but rather about who Jesus is. Jesus is Israel's Messiah, the world's true Lord, the sovereign one. In a world 2,000 years ago where the word Lord often referred to Caesar, it's important to remember that Jesus is the true Lord. In the book of Colossians, Paul highlights the sufficiency of Christ, showing that he is capable of meeting all of our needs this morning, including all of our spiritual salvation and sanctification needs. This is what sets Colossians apart from other books in the Bible, as it emphasizes the unique and powerful role of Jesus in our lives. The message of Christ is present in every book of the Bible. But in Colossians, we witness a powerful depiction of Christ's supremacy and sufficiency. The book emphasizes that Christ is more than enough to meet all of our needs. Paul presents convincing arguments to show us that Jesus should have a supreme place in our lives. You should not treat Christ as an afterthought this morning. Only remembering him on Sunday mornings when you come and gather. Instead, he should be the first priority in every aspect of your life. He should be the first person you talk to every morning before you get your day going. And the last person you talk to before your head hits the pillow. This morning, I want you to see how tremendously Christ-saturated this little letter is. And I'm just going to run through the first references here to show you what what an irresistible picture of Christ in Colossians chapter 1. Just just the first chapter. And I'm going to do this fast. Verse 4 of chapter 1, Jesus is the object of faith. Verse 10, the goal of life is to please Christ in all respects. Verse 11, Christ's glorious and might strengthens us with all power. Verse 13, King Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. Verse 14, in Jesus we have redemption and forgiveness. Verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, by Jesus all things were created, whether on heaven or earth. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that we all have first place in everything. Verse 19, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Verse 20, and Jesus, God has reconciled, or in Jesus, God has reconciled all things to himself, making peace through his blood. Verse 22, Jesus, through his death, has made you holy and blameless. Verse 27, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, has now been revealed. Verse 28, the goal of Christian ministry is to guide every individual toward achieving completeness in Christ. Verse 29, Jesus provides the power to accomplish this. And that's just chapter 1. This morning, we like the the, the new little church in Colossae, we, we need to be reminded to have our entire lives saturated with Christ. We'll be tempted this year 
to look to Jesus plus a political party to find peace. We'll be tempted to look to Jesus plus making all the right choices to find peace. We'll be tempted to look to Jesus plus figure out some secret knowledge to find peace. We'll be tempted to look at Jesus plus some spiritual experience to find peace. Jesus plus anything always diminishes Jesus. May we be people that in 2024 look to Jesus and him alone for grace and peace. Let's pray. Father.